Let's pray. God, indeed, what a powerful name the name of Jesus is, God. What you are able to do in our lives, in us, with us, and through us is more than we can possibly imagine. God, you are our defender. You are our redeemer. Today, we're going to look at Paul. You are our defense. God, you're all that we need. So as we take this time and we dive into your word, help us to hear and to accept and to put into practice whatever it is that you put on our hearts, whatever you work through our ears into our minds that you would have us to hear and to know today. God, we know that uh, we're all here for a reason. You set divine appointments with your people. And uh, we're here because you drew us to this place, whether we're here live or online. And so, God, we just ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would have your way with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the book of Acts, Acts 24. Eric was here last week, and uh, Eric talked about Paul appearing uh, in, a, in a Roman courtroom. It's an interesting thing. He's moved now from Jerusalem up to Caesarea Maritima, and that's on the coast, uh, western coast of Israel, uh, on the, the Mediterranean Sea. It's away from Jerusalem. We're going to hear those two interchange. There's two Caesareas. This is the Caesarea Maritima, Maritima Roman, Roman port. He's being tried before a Roman government official for religious crimes. It's the church that's actually calling Paul out, but they really can't accomplish their purpose with him. They need the Romans to do that for them. Uh, just like with Jesus, they're using the same ploy. The Jewish leaders are trying to get uh, Paul caught on a charge of insurrection against the Roman government because that carries a death penalty. So we're going we're gonna to read uh, chapter 24 and a little bit into chapter 25. We're going to see some things that are just ridiculous. Some of the ways that people talk and what they're trying to accuse them of. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. What is your response? What do you do when people don't fight fair? When people pick a fight you don't want to be in. When they pick an argument that you don't really care about. Something that you don't want to get drawn into. What do you do when they don't fight fair? Because when people really want to fight and they choose not to fight fair, and that's what's happening with Paul. They lie. They accuse, they twist, they turn. They don't really care what the truth is. They just they care that somebody believes it. So what do you do when people don't fight fair with you? Jesus, it says in the Bible, stood silent before his accusers. Paul is going to offer at least a little bit of a defense, but his defense is going to be very simple. As we go through this, think about that, because there's going to be correlations that you're going to see from this text to your life. What do you do? What is your thought process? What do you want to do when people don't fight fair? When they use lies and different things that are just completely away from the truth. That's what Paul's up against. So chapter 24, starting in the first verse. It says, five days later, this is after his first appearance before Felix, the Roman governor. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, uh, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. Ananias, the high priest. You would think that he would be the holiest man in all of Israel. Not true. He was crooked. He was evil. He was cruel. He said that he protected Judaism, that he protected the faith, but really, he's kind of launching this witch hunt against Paul. He's got this personal agenda. And then they hire like a civil attorney guy. They hire somebody to come in to, to speak for the Jews to the Romans who, who maybe is way outside of Paul's league. That's their hope anyway because they're going to kind of have to build a case for him that isn't based on fact. 
And it's kind of funny as we go through this, there's an awful lot of connections to our modern world today. Not just what we do to each other and we hear people doing to each other. It's what we hear happening coming out of Washington and politics all over the place. So they're going to bring charges to Paul to the, against Paul to the governor. So we're going to begin with uh, verse 3 here. You have provided, uh, this is them speaking now, this turtle is speaking to the governor Felix. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have created or enacted reforms for us. He's going to start with this sweet, syrupy, drippy bunch of try to win his favor stuff that's completely not true. Felix has been a jerk. He's had the time as a leadership in leadership for Rome. It's been the least peaceful of all in all of Judea. He's crooked. He's known for taking bribes. He's ruthless. He isn't kind. And it says you've enacted reforms. That's kind of like saying that you've charged us for taxes and we don't even know where the money's going. The reforms aren't a good thing. They're laws that he's passing down. And they're trying to make it sound like they appreciate it to earn his favor. For all of this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you. No, they're not. They hated him. He was evil and he knew how they felt. The job of the Roman governor was to keep peace for the Roman government with the Jewish people. Pretty much at whatever cost. So he's enacting Roman law that the Jewish people don't like and he's got to find a way to keep everybody happy. One of the ways Felix had done it was to take bribes from one party that went into his pocket to keep everyone quiet. But I don't want to bore you. So please give me your attention for only a moment. We found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker who's constantly stirring up riots. No, he's not. There have been riots around him. There's been riots about what he said. Actually, he had the audacity to say that God cared about the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as much as the Jews, that Jesus would save them as well. And the riots began, but not because of Paul. Riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Paul and others in the New Testament call their new gathering the way. The way being a new way of life that Jesus showed us how to live. It's not a cult. What it is is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Paul, who is trained and raised as a Roman citizen, but raised in the Jewish synagogue to be a rabbi, understood what they were looking for in a Messiah, and he saw everything that they had been waiting for in Jesus. And that's what he was preaching. And that was what the people couldn't stand. And so what they do is, in order to try to make them sound a little bit more difficult and nefarious, they call them the Nazarenes, not the way, not the name that they chose at all. Why? Because of Jesus of Nazareth. They had a problem with Jesus of Nazareth. So they called this group the Nazarenes and dubbed it a cult. Furthermore, he's trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. Not true. Flat out lie. We're going to hear why in a moment. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Well, Felix is going to. And the hope that they have is that Felix is going to believe their buttered up version over Paul's version, which will certainly be the truth. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything that Tertullus said was true. What do you do when people don't fight fair? Romans 8.31, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a little bit of a glimpse into the defense that Paul is going to give for himself. What do you do when people don't fight fair, when they lie, when they gossip, when they slander? What do you do? Paul would say, if God, can be for, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is our defender. 
There's a reason the Bible told us that Jesus stood silent before his accusers. His accusers were wrong. Jesus' whole point was that God be given the glory and it cost Jesus his life. But that's exactly what happened and Paul finds himself in the same position. If it cost him his life and God gets the glory, Paul is all for that. Paul has lived a life and had a message of nothing but unity, love, and declaring salvation in the name of Jesus. And that's what the Jews are so upset about. Then the governor, Felix, motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that's all the buttering up he does. I know, sir, that you've been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years. He left out the part where you're crooked and evil and cruel and mean and you take bribes. He left that out. He said, I know you've been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You have to imagine a movie. These characters, these are real people. I don't know who, the, who Hollywood would cast. I guess they're on strike. They wouldn't cast anybody right now. I don't know who they would cast to play these parts, but they're real people. And, and the humor in this stuff is just, you can't miss it. I gladly prevent my, present my defense before you. And you've got to imagine these Jewish folks are just shaking about what he's going to say. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. I got to Jerusalem 12 days ago. That's not enough time to gather this army to cause this insurrection, to start riots. And I went to the temple, and you can ask anybody because I'll all tell you. Right off the bat, he's starting with their word against anybody else who might have been at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. I read that this week as I was getting ready, and I thought, that's kind of the state of American politics. We hear people accused of all kinds of stuff, but when it comes time for a trial, there just, generally speaking, isn't the evidence for it. Or if there is the evidence, the evidence gets ignored. And in 2,000 years, things really haven't changed. It's a popularity contest, and it looks like Paul may not be the most popular one. Verse 14, but I do admit that I follow the way. The, the name for this movement of Jesus' followers, why is it called the way? Because it's a way of living. It's a way of living modeled after the life of Jesus, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors. Now, he can't be speaking to the Roman leader here. He's speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Our ancestors. I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, right there, he just ran into problems again because the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't agree. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees do. And so what Paul is saying is, I, I align with the Pharisees. I believe that God will raise the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of that, uh, excuse me, because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all the people. Some Bibles translate that, try to maintain it, strive. I strive to, I work toward. It is my intention. Paul is working at maintaining a clear conscience. Paul doesn't say, I don't sin. Some people have set Paul up to almost be uh, alongside Jesus in the New Testament. And that's a huge mistake because if we really read the New Testament for what it says, Paul is a human every bit like you and I. Paul doesn't claim not to be a, sin a sinner. He says, I strive to have a clear conscience before God and man. How as sinners, how can we do that? 
How can we have a clear conscience knowing that we've sinned? Here's the answer the Bible would give us. We accept and acknowledge our sin. We admit that we have sinned, our sinners. We admit that we do things that have broken God's heart. And when we identify one, we confess it to God. God, I know I did this, and I know this isn't what you want, and I know it's not your plan for my life. God, and I'm sorry. And after confession comes repentance where we say, God, I don't want to continue in that pattern. I don't want to continue with that sin anymore. In the power of your Holy Spirit, God, change my mind and change my heart. I don't want to do it anymore. Repentance means to turn and go the other way. And then after that, we receive forgiveness. And the wonderful thing about Jesus and his death and resurrection is that while we will remember what we have done, our conscience can be clear. Paul isn't saying that he's not a sinner. He said, I strive to have a clear conscience before God and man. You and I, we can do the very same thing. And when we do that and we follow this lead of Paul's, then God becomes our defender in the same way that we see God becoming Paul's defender. After several years, verse 17, after several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and offer sacrifices to God. They're trying to make his return to be this nefarious, riot-causing, cult-building message of, of awfulness. And Paul says, I came back to Jerusalem with money to bring to, to my friends, to the people of my church, to my fellow believers, for the ones that don't have it, and to offer sacrifices to God. What he's saying is, I simply am living according to Jewish law. And there's nothing that the Roman government can find fault in that. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. Another statement that he's being a good Jewish man. There was no crowd around me and there was no rioting. But some Jews from the province of Asia, we read about this a couple of weeks ago, they were there. And they ought to be here to bring charges if they've got anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time where I shouted, I'm on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul has got a sense of humor. He ticked off the Sadducees. And he's going, I I didn't have any charge, except I did say that. And that's true. And the Pharisees, they all agree with it. So he's kind of having some fun with them right now. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way. Felix, the Roman governor, governor, is familiar with this new movement of Christ followers. He adjourned the hearing and he said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I'll decide the case. He's kind of wimping out. He's kicking the can down the road. He says, I don't want to make a decision right now. See, his job is to maintain the authority and the rule of the Roman government, but to keep peace among the Jewish people. And this is suddenly a hot button. He's probably thinking back, man, it wasn't very long ago we had a very similar issue with Jesus. This whole insurrection, they called him against the government. And I don't really see that Paul is doing that. So he says, I'm going to decide later. So he orders an officer to keep Paul in custody but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. When you were in jail, the jail uh, government didn't take care of you. They didn't give you clothes. They didn't bring you food. Your friends and family had to do that. So Felix is making sure that Paul can be well taken care of and that people can visit him. Felix doesn't see a threat with Paul. From everything that he's heard, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. The accusations are wrong. You can see in his mind that's already becoming clear. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla. Incidentally, she's the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I, another Roman leader. So it's kind of a ruling by family here. And she was Jewish. 
Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ. They sent for Paul, just the two of them, because he's the governor. He can do anything he wants. So he says, go get Paul. I want to ask him some questions. I want to know more about the way. My wife says that a lot of what he says is making sense. It's got to be the conversation they're having at home. My guess is Drusilla said, you know, it's really, it's, it, it seems to line up with Jewish scriptures. This Jesus guy is an awful lot like the Messiah. And so Felix sends for him and says, I want to hear more. So they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them, so he's having a conversation, a debate about righteousness, the things that Felix has trouble with. Righteousness because Felix isn't righteous. And self-control because Felix has no self-control. He's an arrogant leader. And the coming day of judgment. That Felix, one day you're going to have to answer for your life. One day there's going to be a day of judgment. And the Bible says Felix became frightened. I have to imagine that between the corroborating evidence of his wife and the strength of the testimony and the argument from Paul, Felix found truth. This way, this Jesus movement must be a real thing. And there must have been something in him that said, you know... I understand that I'm not a righteous man. I understand I'm not a good man. I understand I'm not always a reasonable or a fair man. And he became frightened. You know what we call that is conviction. We hate conviction. We hate when the Holy Spirit works on us because it's God's way of saying, you know, this thing that you love so much, I don't like it. It's wrong and it's not good for you. I didn't send Jesus to die for you so that you could do that. You're just going to get yourself in more trouble. That's the conviction that Felix is feeling. And he becomes frightened and he says, go away for now. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. See, he hoped Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and, and he talked with him. Felix is an immoral coward. He wants this information. He wants to know more. He probably wants to believe because he continues to call for Paul. But there's a part of him there's a hard part of him where Satan's got a hold of him and he goes, this guy's important to somebody. Somebody out there will pay you money to let him out. Bribes have always worked in the past. They'll work now. So Felix keeps ingratiating himself, having these conversations, pretending he's interested, just waiting for someone to come along with the possibility of a bribe. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. He probably let, forgot about him, didn't even tell Festus right away. See, here's the thing. Leadership is doing the hard stuff. Leadership sometimes means disappointing people. Leadership is when you've got to say and do things that, that people aren't going to like. And the Jewish people aren't going to like if he finds Paul not guilty of insurrection because Paul's not guilty. Paul hasn't done anything wrong. But remember, this guy's a coward and he's selfish and he wants a bribe and he's not willing to do the hard thing. And so you know what Rome does? We can't have a leader like that. So he's gone. Felix is done. They move him out. They move in a new man called Portius Festus because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people. So often our decisions and our actions in life are to impress people, not to impress God. We do things to, to keep things flowing smoothly. We, we put ideas and things in the back closet the way Felix is doing. I'll deal with it later. But God doesn't always wait till later, and He isn't waiting with Portius Festus either. 
Three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem. Why? That was the local seat for the Romans as well, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him, and they made their accusations against Paul. Festus puts this, this thing with Paul at the top of his agenda. He travels to Jerusalem to say, all right, tell me what you got to tell me. I got this guy locked up in my jail. I'm giving him some freedom, but I want to know what your complaint really is. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush him on the way. It sounds an awful lot like what the Jewish leaders did with Jesus. See, they wanted to get Paul out of the way just the way they wanted to get Jesus out of the way. They figure if they can kill Paul, maybe they can quiet him the way that they quieted Jesus. And so they decided, let's not play fair. Let's get him out on the road where we can ambush and kill him and just put an end to this guy. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and that he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority, you can return with me. If Paul's done anything wrong, you can make your accusations there. Festus is showing himself to be a little fair, a little moral. He's also telling the Jewish people, if this guy's that important, then you do something about it. You work a little bit. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea and on the following day, he took his seat in court. This guy's willing to work hard. He's not taking time off. And he ordered that Paul be brought in. And when Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations they couldn't prove. Kind of sounds like what we hear about in the news in America today. But there are many serious accusations. Why? Because if the way proves to be correct, if Jesus proves to be true, they're afraid that it's going to be devastating for their way of life and for their church. What we're seeing happen here, God is at work. God is at work through unlikely people. God is at work through, through Paul and in Paul's life. But there's another player here. And so often in the American church, we ignore this part of the equation because there's a battle going on. See, the war has been won. Go to the end of your Bible. You can read the book of Revelation. The war is won. God wins the war through Jesus. But Satan is also at work. Satan is fighting in the minds and the lives and the greed and the arrogance and the selfishness and the bribes. Satan is at work trying to draw people away from God. He's working to try to get Paul in more trouble than Paul should be in. And Satan is at work in your world as well. Why? Because Satan wants to tempt you away from God by making bad look good and by making good look bad, which is what America is caught in that swamp right now. But Satan also wants to do just little things to get you to change your thinking. He'll throw out accusations to people uh, that maybe will hear them about you. Maybe he'll cause problems that really aren't problems. Maybe he'll create waves where there really don't need to be waves. And in America, we, we've, kind of, we've kind of collectively lost our discernment about where God is at work and where Satan is causing problems. And as Christians, we need to be aware, we need to be able to discern those things. Because if we're not, we get caught up in Satan's schemes. So they've got these accusations they can't prove. Paul denies the charges. I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. My conscience is clear. I went to the temple, the synagogue, the Jewish leaders with the best of intentions. And there's nothing that I'm doing that is against the Roman government. That's truth. Then Festus Wanting to please the Jews, he's concerned about national security. And that's the only card the Jews have, is to convince him that Paul is a threat to Roman security. So he wants to please the Jews, but he's got to keep the peace. 
he asks Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? And there is this watershed defining moment in Paul's life. Are you willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial before me there? Paul answers, no. It's got an exclamation point in your Bible. No, this is the official Roman court. So I ought to be tried right here. You know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, and that's a Roman crime, which is what they're trying to get him convicted of. He says, I don't refuse to die. But Felix knows he hasn't done anything against Rome. It's the same charges that they made against Jesus, and they're hoping to get the same result with Paul. But if I'm innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. And then he makes the statement that, as a Roman citizen, Felix can't ignore, and it starts a whole lot of problems. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to a higher authority. Now, Paul knows the highest authority is God. But in this part of the world, at this time, it was Caesar. I appeal to Caesar, his right as a Roman. It's an all-or-nothing call. It's an absolute refusal to bow to the local governor. And he says, if you're not going to do the right thing, if you are also going to fail to do the right thing, then I'm going to appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisors and he replied, Very well, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Why can Paul do that? Because Paul has a clear conscience. He knows his intentions have been good, and he has intended nothing against the Roman government. See, Paul is caught in this, this agenda that the Jews have, and they're trying to get the Romans to work with them again, and it's nothing more than a witch hunt. But Paul refuses to back down, he refuses to give in. He refuses to do anything but stand for the truth of God. And when you and I stand for God, we will be opposed. We're learning that in the book of Acts. When you stand for the truth of Jesus in America today, you will be opposed. People will say things about you that are not true. They will make claims about what you believe that are not true. They will tell you as a Christian what you're supposed to believe, and they have no idea other than that it fits the agenda. The very same thing is happening today. But what happens when we're opposed? Especially what happens when we're opposed by other church people. Because sometimes people don't fight fair. What will you choose? Will you be silent? Will you fight back? Will you fight back unfairly? Or will you stand on God's truth? Because that's what Paul does. See, God's at work, but we must never forget that Satan is at war with God. And the battlefield now is you and I. You are the battlefield that Satan is fighting for. Your heart, your mind, your attention, your affection, your finances, your thoughts, what you do with your free time, what you believe in, who you vote for. Satan is at war for all of that because he can use any and all of those things to draw you away from God. And when, when we allow offense or politics or social agendas or pressure from other people or even patriotism, even worshiping the flag of the country to be more important to us than a relationship with the living Jesus, we have just given in to Satan. When a political person or a party or an ideology or an agenda or a flag are more important to Jesus, we have just given up the foundation of our faith. What's happening in America, we're becoming weak because Satan is chipping away at our foundation and Christians don't even know we're being willing participants. Paul appeals to Caesar without ever giving up anything 
of his faith in God. See, when, when we choose to stand against the world and we choose to stand for God, Satan will raise his head. Satan will make noise. You will be opposed. We have to be discerning. We have to choose wisely and carefully. And the thing of it is, Satan doesn't fight fair. When I asked you at the beginning, what happens when somebody doesn't fight fair? Satan doesn't fight fair. doesn't know how to. Satan lies and deceives and tricks. There's all of those things because if he can get us to turn our attention or our affection away from God, that's one step closer to turning us away forever. What's at stake? Your eternity. What's at stake is your heart, your faith, your belief. As Christians in America today, we need to stand together and to be strong on God's truth. Not what we want the Bible to say, but what the Bible says. And where do we find that out? We find that out by reading and knowing and studying and believing God's Word. But God gives you the ability to choose. You get to choose what you're going to believe and who you're going to believe in. Let's pray. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the incredible man of faith that he was. Thank you, God, that he, he was so committed to you that going to jail, dying in jail, being killed for his faith was not a concern to him because he knew that in any one of those things, God, you could still receive the glory. The name of Jesus could still be proclaimed. Help us to have that kind of faith, God. Not the kind of faith that, that we get to do whatever we want to. Not the kind of faith that matches up with our our feelings or our wants, the kind of faith that you show us in Scripture, the kind of faith in Jesus that doesn't change because of circumstances, doesn't change because of situations. God, Paul is such a good example of that. Help us to be those kind of believers. And God, the only way that we can do that is to put our faith and hope and trust in you, to know that you are our defender. God, and that you are at work through your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us and lead us and guide us and direct us. That he would grant us discernment, that he would grant us wisdom and knowledge, and that he would grant us strength when it's time to take a stand for you in a world that doesn't want to hear a word of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.